Well, good morning. The term meddle, M-E-D-D-L-E, means to interfere mischievously. That's where the phrase was coined. The preacher has gone from preaching to... Yes. Well, preaching on Christian liberty can certainly feel like meddling, right? No matter where you are today, if you would consider yourself strong in what we have been teaching thus far or weak... In that regard, the goal is not to pull the weak up to where the strong are or for the strong to browbeat browbeat the weak, to pull them up or down, whatever that may be. Uh, We've learned so much so far on Christian liberty, and this is the third sermon on the subject. In the first two, we spent our time in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. And the reason we do that is because that chapter gives us the very heart of of Christian liberty. We just sang about it, did we not? Chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The NLT says, So Christ has really set us free. Now make sure you stand free, stay free, and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. And so Christian liberty is rooted in the context of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I hope you've captured that thought and the fact that you are thankful to the Lord that the curse of the law has been removed from you and you're no longer bound in sin. We've been set free and that's the root of Christian liberty. And then last week we talked about how once you you embrace the declaration of your freedom in Christ, that you now stand firm in the freedom that you have and don't go back into the slavery of bondage. And then, if you remember last week, we concluded with that call of freedom that's in verse 13. Embrace the declaration, stand firm, and then that call. For you were called to freedom, brothers. But that call comes with a warning. You Baptists, and here's the warning. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So, with the warning, the writer says, don't use your freedom to satisfy the sinful nature, but use your freedom to serve and to love one another. This is our new and glorious bondage. It's a good bondage. It's a bondage to Christ. We're yoked to Him and we're slaves of Christ, but we're also in bondage to love and serve one another. So it is imperative that we keep this view of who we are in Christ and that freedom as we think about how the practical outworkings work in this body of believers here at First Baptist Church. As we live life under the Word of God, we have to think first, of the fact that we're free in Christ and what that cost, the expense of what, who we are in Jesus and how that ultimately the practical outworkings flow out of serving and loving one another. So our practice of Christian liberty must be motivated, governed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. The moment you begin to think in only gray areas or what can I do and what can I not do, then you've, you're a minimalistic person. You've minimalized what it really means To be free in Christ. Christian liberty, again, finds its root 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that Galatians says he set you free from this evil age. He's delivered you from the curse of the law. And Jesus did that by becoming a curse for you. Galatians chapter 3. Don't you love the verse? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. He has freed us from the bondage of sin and continually frees us from the oppression of sin. And the reign of sin in us, according to Romans chapter 6. Now today's sermon will be an application of that great truth of the freedom that we have in Christ and how this is to be lived out in this body. The implications that we will draw today from Christian liberty are crucial for our church family and for this community of faith. And you will see that Paul's number one concern is not whether you can have a glass of wine with your steak. The number one concern is, how do you love and serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you all ready? Now, let's read 1 Corinthians 8 as we start off. We've been in Galatians, but we're going to to read 1 Corinthians 8 to get the context of the questions I will ask. We're going to pose five questions in the sermon. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 is vitally important. 1 Corinthians 6... Romans chapter 14, we're going to hit all of those. But let me establish some parameters and some thinking by reading 1 Corinthians 8. I'm going to read fast, you listen fast. Ready? Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. The world needs to hear that, right? And that there is no God but one. Hallelujah. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Man, that's some good theology, right? Verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do. If we do. In other words, there are some things that are uh, indifferent, period. And that's one of them, food. But there are many things. But take care that this right of yours, in other words, to eat, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Man, he just upped the ante, did he not? Not only do you sin against your brother, but also Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, question one for this particular sermon. Is this really an area of liberty? Shouldn't we not start there? When it comes to ethics and attitude and my brothers and sisters in the Lord and my own personal walk with Christ, my Lord, 
we ought to always start with this question regarding uh, maybe even what we might think is a gray area. We have the Word of God written for us. We have things given to us explicitly and implicitly. We know what the Word says. Uh, Baptists, we have a problem. Most of us have heard enough preaching to last for a lifetime if we'd simply lived what we've heard the first time we heard it. Right? So we have to stop and ask the question, is this really a liberty? We've got to be honest with ourselves. Is this an area of liberty, liberty or is this a matter explicitly or implicitly addressed in the Bible? So the reason we've got to start here is because there are so many Christians today who chalk up their actions to Christian liberty no matter what that action is. So we've got to start with the word. Young people, cheating on a test is not a Christian liberty. It's called sin. You adults don't believe that? Why don't you say amen? Right? Cheating on your taxes is not a Christian liberty. It's a sin. Thank you, sister. She came out with that one. Using illegal substances is not an area of Christian liberty. If it's illegal, according to our state, it's sin before God if you partake of it. Period. It's amazing how some of the things that you've heard over the years, some of the things I've heard over the years, it's amazing how people chalk that up to Christian liberty. And you say, well, what does the Bible say? And they're like, just hiccup and keep going and like the Bible is not relevant. Well, it's relevant to them only if it feels good for them, right? But if it touches on their issue, they don't want to hear it. We need to be honest. Is this legitimately an area of Christian liberty, or does the Word of God directly, indirectly, explicitly, or implicitly deal with this subject? You're never going to be able to take something that is ethically wrong and make it right and make it anything other than sin. That's the strength of Scripture. Paul says, remember in Galatians, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now, do perspectives on Christian liberty change over time? I'm not talking about the things taught in the Word that you know explicitly, implicitly, directly, indirectly deal with certain issues. Yes, we would have to say that our convictions over time can change. Uh, There are some situations and some things that I was pretty legalistic on early on, that I've been a little conditioned by the Word to change on those things. But there are also some things that I may have thought was a liberty for me ten years ago that's not a liberty for me anymore. Now, I'm not speaking of things explicitly. In other words, I'm dealing now with things, I would ask the question, is this a liberty or not? And yes, it's a liberty, but still, even when I say yes, my convictions have changed one way or the other, even on some of those things. However, there may be an area where a person has abstained from something over a amount of time, and they feel like, well, it's okay at this point in my Christian walk, and I see that that's a liberty, but the same could be true on the other side. You've got to be able to make distinctions among things. We need, to give, we need God to give us complete understanding of what He wants to do with our lives. And that's where we have to start, right? God, is this really a liberty? And Father, what is it that you would have me to do with my life? You are my Lord. What is it you would have me to do? How will I most honor and please you? We want to make wise decisions. Amen? Amen. With full knowledge of what the Word of God has to say to us. Remember, the Bible says that it is the fool who trusts in his own heart. 
And in our world today, we just say, well, go with your heart. That's the worst thing you can ever do. The Bible says in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That word heart is Jacob. Jacob, it's the back of the hill. Remember Jacob was a hill grabber as Esau was born? Well, that's what the heart is deceitful. It's a hill grabber. You can't trust your heart. You trust the word. Are you listening? Now, if your heart is listening to the word and you follow that, it's a different scenario. But just to throw out that, oh, just listen to your heart. No, you need to listen to what the word of God has to say. The issues of liberty must be defined biblically. So that's number one. Is this really a liberty? How does the Bible address it? Number two, will the use of this liberty enslave me and bring me into bondage? Let's say that you figure out that this is a liberty and I can partake of this or I can do this as a believer. Uh, It's an indifferent issue. I can leave it or I can take it or not do it, whatever that may be. You have another question. Will the use of this liberty enslave me and bring me into bondage? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You should be there still if you didn't move away. Just flip back a page and listen to how Paul deals this. For me, actually, I didn't have to flip back a page. It's on the page I'm on. So, will the use of this liberty enslave me and bring me into bondage? Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. He goes on to explain that. But notice this phrase, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So, there's actually quotation marks around this slogan. Did y'all notice that in your scripture? If you have certain translations, there will not be quotes around it. But if you have an ESV, you'll notice that all things are lawful has quotation marks around it. And the reason for that is... It's because most commentators and scholars believe this is called a Christian slogan that the Corinthians coined based upon a teacher that taught them all things are lawful. Who was the teacher? Paul, right? But the Corinthians took that phrase, all things are lawful, which is true, but they started applying that all things are lawful even when they were doing things that were clearly sinful in the Bible. And they also applied it to Christian liberty and said, well, all things are lawful. And they were doing certain Christian liberties that were causing their brothers and sisters to stumble. And so we, we take from that that, it's, that you have to stop long enough to say, is this going to enslave me? And Paul says, even when all things are lawful, and you're using that as a slogan, you've got to stop long enough to say, is this going to cause me to go into bondage? Is this going to enslave my life? You know, I think the Corinthians had what we might call bumper sticker theology. Or might we say chariot bumper sticker theology, right? And they used this, all things are lawful. And again, they got this idea strictly straight from the preaching of Paul to teach them about what liberty is. So it's likely and probable that the teaching of Christian liberty was extrapolated theologically from what Paul had actually taught them. Here's the problem. They were using it to justify everything. And Paul will say, not all things are profitable. 
Yes, I'm free in Christ, but I will not be enslaved or mastered by anything. Will the use of this liberty enslave me and bring me into bondage? Being a slave of Jesus Christ and His righteousness and living for Him and His Lordship is one of the number one principles of being a Christian. We're not enslaved by other things. We're enslaved by Christ. Do I got to help me or I'm going to preach slower? <laughs> Say amen ever so often so that I know you're alive. Okay? We have but one Lord. He's our Lord and Savior. Right? We can't be enslaved to other things. The Bible says you can't serve God in money. And so look, clearly from the Word of God, we have this... We can't be enslaved by anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. If this thing is going to enslave me, bring me into bondage, although it may be inherently an issue of Christian liberty, don't do it. Don't use your liberty for an occasion for the opportunity of the flesh. Paul tells the Romans to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So when he's your master, everything changes. If a liberty has the capacity to enslave you, don't practice that liberty. It'll bring you under bondage. I think this principle covers a large spectrum of liberty, doesn't it? In other words, don't think strictly of alcohol when we start talking about bondage and slavery or being enslaved, which alcohol certainly will bring you into bondage and enslave you. Unless you totally misrepresent and abuse the Bible, it is absolutely clear that the consumption of alcohol in moderation was allowed. But let me remind you of something. The fact is, it's true that Jesus drank wine. And I'm sure if I would have lived in the first century, I would have drank wine as well. There's a reason for that, because the water will kill you. Okay? So I'm sure if that's the only thing I could consume, I would have certainly drank that alcohol. But I would venture to say that the Lord Jesus Christ never partook of strong drink. There is a, a, a complete difference in the Greek and Hebrew between wine and strong drink. We know that for a fact. We talk about strong drink. Scripture says don't even look at it when it's in the glass as a sparkling. We know what the connotations are from that. But I want to remind you that Bob Stein has carefully documented, listen to this, the term wine or oinos in the ancient world then did not mean wine as we understand it today, but wine mixed with water. To consume the amount of alcohol that is in two martinis by drinking wine containing three parts water to one part wine, which was the known common ancient ratio, one would have to drink over 22 glasses today. For you to become inebriated. You know what that means? You're going to have a problem with your bladder before you have a problem being intoxicated. Okay? That's what that means. It's, it's not impossible to become intoxicated with three parts water, one part alcohol. But folks, you're going to have to linger long. Thus the scripture says, don't linger long at the cup. So, it should be noted that children also partook of this kind of drink. Would you give your kids what you drink today? Amen, sister. You wouldn't. It seems very clear that there is no one-to-one -one correspondence with first century wine and 21st century distilled liquor. Concerning the latter, distilled liquor, I do not believe that the Lord Jesus would have partaken of what we have today. 
You can take that up with him if you disagree. But that's what I believe personally. And you've got a right to be wrong, right? <laughs> Here are a couple of practical considerations. Should we practice abstinence and look down on others? Should the ones who practice abstinence look down on others? And that's the point, folks. We should not. There's an unqualified no. That's the pride, uh, that's the pride of sin, to look down. And the fact of the matter is, I'm sure that alcohol has contributed to many people going wayward, which it has. But no doubt pride has done the very same thing in greater numbers. So smug, prideful abstainers without Jesus is just as lost as a poor drunkard who is always in search for another drink. Those who believe in abstinence, like I do, I'm a teetotaler, for many, many reasons. And so that brings out a point. Would I ever exclude someone from joining First Baptist Ozark because they're, uh, they drink in moderation? No, I would never exclude you from joining this church. However, my stance for eldership in this church, and I can tell you at least two of those, myself and Chris Dixton, is that we will abstain and will not drink because of our leadership position at this church. And so that's important. Listen to Proverbs 31, 4 through 5. It's very appropriate here. Appropriate. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for the kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. I have way too much at stake to fool with alcohol. I have way too much to, to think about with this church family. Questions I never have to uh, answer to young kids about alcohol when I hold the stance that I hold. It's pretty easy. Number one, for you knuckleheads, if you're not 21, you shouldn't even be dealing with it and thinking about it. Right? And God forbid that any of your parents be stupid enough to go buy it for your kids. Alright? Okay. Whew. Glad I got that out. Listen, if you're enslaved by alcohol, you'd better stop. You know forthrightly in your mind if that is bondage to you and you have to have the next drink. You know that. You better stop. You're free to play video games. But if that enslaves you, you better stop. I can't think of anything worse than a 30-year-old man sitting in the house all day playing video games. Get a job. All right? Listen. You're free to play Facebook. To be on Facebook. Play Facebook. That's about the truth. You're free to be on Facebook. But if that consumes your life, it's just as bad as alcohol. Maybe the ramifications are not. But still, the fact of the matter is, you're not free to do that when it enslaves you. The moment you sense that enslavement, you are not free to do that. Have y'all had enough of that one? I'm meddling, right? I told you. Mischievously interfering in your life. But I'm doing it because you need to hear it. Okay, number three. Does my conscience condemn me? Is this truly a liberty? Will it, will it cause me to go into bondage and, and, and enslave me? And third, does my conscience condemn me? Romans chapter 14, if you'll flip back just a few pages. Let's read verse 14 of Romans 14. The Bible says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. Remember that sermon, Acts 15? Or, well, it's Acts 10. Kill it and grill it, right? I mean, that's what Peter saw. And he's saying nothing is unclean. 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So Paul said, I'm persuaded that there's nothing unclean. I can eat what I want to eat, but there's a qualifier. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And he speaks of conscience. He speaks of how that, verse 22, the faith that you have Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So there can be something that you believe is a liberty. But your conscience is bothering you. And although the liberty is not a sin. When you go against the troubled conscience according to Paul. That is a sin. So what does your conscience say about that? Now, again, to go against conscience is sin, but what do we know about our conscience? It's not infallible, yet there is a principle that a troubled conscience is not a thing you should just forget about, and it should never be violated. I think it's important to make a distinction between vague feelings of guilt and your conscience. In other words, vague feelings of guilt are more like, I know something's not quite right with this, but I can't put my finger on it. That's one thing. However, the knowledge of the Scripture does not allow us to be controlled by a liberty that violates our conscience. So vague feelings of doubt or confusion is one thing. But when you know it goes against your conscience, folks, for you that is not a liberty. According to Paul, that's not done in faith and is actually a sin. A sin. When conscience says this is right, this is wrong, Paul would remind us that it's never good to go against a troubled conscience. Does my conscience condemn me? Number four, is this profitable and does it honor God? Man, I'm really meddling now, right? We could put it another way. Is this harmful and does it dishonor God? I realize that this application can be used by the weak, uh, to stranglehold or attempt to stranglehold the strong because a weak person can say, well, I think that this is not profitable for me and I think it's harmful and I think it dishonors God and it's a gray area. And they can say to the strong person who may be, uh, who is not abstaining from it, to say to them, well, you're just not who I am and you're not what I am and uh, you're actually immature because you do this. I, re- I realize that. But at the end of the day, it's difficult or almost impossible to ascertain whether what you did every, in every area of life was actually profitable and actually honored God. So let's move past thinking, well, is this going to honor God? Well, the fact is, we, let me give you an example of that. The statement in context of Christian liberty is, is the fa- it is eating and drinking in light of Christian liberty. Now, we apply that and say, well, does everything I eat and everything I drink bring glory to God? Now, how many of you stop every time and think about that before you eat that and drink that? No, we usually don't, do we? And even, even that eating and drinking, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That's actually in the context of Christian liberty, correct? So, just think about that for a moment. Is, is something going to be, is it harmful for us. 
What if your kids come to you and say, Dad, we want to go bowling tonight. And you say, well, son, can you do this for the glory of God? How many of you dads do that? I mean, yes, we, we, we absolutely know that we live in light of who God is and His character and His holiness every single day. And whatever we eat or drink, we need to do it for the glory of God. But are we always constantly aware of that principle? Like if your kids say, can we go bowling? And we say, well, how is bowling going to bring glory to God? You can't even make a strike, man. How's that going to bring God glory? I don't think we operate that way. When you say, your son says, Dad, can I go bowling? Give me seven reasons how that's going to glorify God and you can go bowling. <laughs> now, we don't do that, right? But we do know when something is profitable for us. We do know when something's going to harm us, correct? So, so I know you can shoot things out there like, well, everything's supposed to be done for the glory of God. Yeah, but pause for a moment and use what Paul says. Is this thing going to harm me? Is this profitable for me? Does it honor God or does it dishonor God? The things that are indifferent are truly indifferent, correct? Again, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8. Just listen to this. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do. So there are some gray areas that really are indifferent areas. It doesn't commend you to God and it doesn't push you away from God. Are y'all getting this? There are some of those things. But in the context of that, we still have to stop and ask, is it profitable? Will it do harm to me? Will it bring honor and glory to the Lord? Or will it dishonor Him? Uh, the fact of food will not, doesn't have the ability to draw you closer to the Lord or push you away from the Lord. We've got a golf tournament coming up that Picard's got planned. Oh, Kevin back there, I thought I'd call his name, get his attention. He was asleep. All right. But we got this church golf tournament coming up, and you know, some of us play army golf, right, left, right, left. We're, you know, we're not that good at it and all that kind of stuff. But the fact is, golf doesn't commend you to God. All right? You won't be worse if you golf or better if you do, as far as who the Lord is. Uh, you won't be more spiritual if you golf or more carnal if you golf, unless you're like some of our guys and throw their golf clubs in the trees and Right? And stomp on somebody or uh, our terminology. You know, you'll find out where a believer is if you go golfing with them, right? <laughs> but the fact is, there's that slogan. And here's another one. 1 Corinthians 10. Let me give you one more of those. Uh, quotation mark slogans. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Whew, man, that's a good phrase. Not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Remember Galatians 5? After Paul turns around and says, uh, So for freedom Christ set you free. But then he turns right around at the end and says, Now here's one of the, height, the most important things to do. Love and serve one another. And then he gives you the second commandment. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And here Paul is returning to that in 1 Corinthians. So he's bringing about this understanding that uh, will this area have the tendency to consume my time and energy in such a way that I end up being spiritually poorer because I've actually engaged in this particular thing. Not all things are helpful for me. I need to stop long enough to think about that. Let's consider that bowling analogy for a few moments. 
Let's suppose that uh, baby Ajax asks again, can I go bowling? And you say, well, who are you going bowling with? And they list out four or five people that you know at that moment are not walking with God. Then I say to my son, no, you're not going to go bowling, but I'm going to tell you why. Not because I think the planks on the bowling course are evil, right? I don't think that alley is evil. The reason you don't need to go is because it's going to be harmful for you. Yeah, it's a spiritual liberty. You can bowl all you want to. But what about the people you're hanging around when you're going over there bowling? You understand that that's some of the things that we have to keep in consideration. I got one more for you. How will this affect my brothers and sisters? And this is really number one. It's Paul's ultimate concern when he teaches on Christian liberty. So now again, this can be, uh, end up being a club that the weak may take and beat over the heads of the strong. Um, we know that can take place. I read an interesting article. You know, some of you probably heard of the Moody Journal. Because, let me go back. You know, it's easy for us to say, that offends me. Well, how do we really clarify what is offensive according to what Paul is saying? Don't offend your brother. Well, what does that necessarily mean? Uh, for instance, in the Moody Journal, that was written for years and years and years, it's named after D.L. Moody, right? And they struggled. They never wanted to put anybody's picture on there in the Moody Journal that had a beard. Well, guess what? Moody had a beard. I mean, on the day you commemorate uh, the Moody Journal, and it's, what do you do, not put his picture up there because he's got a beard? So it became an issue. As a matter of fact, Moody was asked once about his beard from a lady and told, the, the lady said to him, your beard causes me to stumble. Here's what Moody said, ma'am, the only way that I could be causing you to stumble is if you were tempted to grow your own beard and you thought it was wrong. Amen, right? <laughs> Just because someone doesn't like what you do does not constitute you causing them to stumble. Stumble. What does? Well, 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Back over there one more time. I said that before, did I not? 8, 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And so what will give them the right to eat meat? According to these verses. Well it's the fact that there is but one God. And I don't care how many times you offer a sacrifice to a God. That God doesn't exist. The only one that exists is ours. It's the God of the Bible. So that gives. That's the knowledge that gives us the right to eat. There is but one God. Well the meat sacrificed to idols. Was sacrificed to nothing. Because that God doesn't exist. Well is that not good enough. For everybody to begin eating meat. Don't we want the weak to be brought up together to a strong position? I want to do this too, the weaker brother may say. But what about his conscience may not be settled on it? We would all think this is a good thing. And we'd say to him, eat some T-bone, dude. Right? Go ahead and have a T-bone. 
This is not what Paul's perspective is at all. Remember, this was a big issue in, in Acts chapter 15. Uh, for taking of meat that had, been, that had been offered to idols. You remember that? They're told as Gentiles not to do this. So through your knowledge, uh, in other words, that person may be strengthened to eat, but also strengthened to go against his conscience. Through your knowledge, the one that is weak is ruined. You've taken someone with a conviction not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You may have a good reason, or that person may have a good reason. You may have a good reason to encourage that person to do it. But that was this person's conviction not to do it. So by using your liberty in such a way that he sees you doing it, it emboldens him to go against his conscience and eat meat. And folks, here's what I know. The Lord doesn't take that lightly. Because it says you sin against your brother and you sin against Christ. Ultimately, that's what it is. This is serious. This is a temptation to fall back into the sin that bound him. Now, in this case, it was idolatry. And it ends up bringing him unto bondage again. Now, here's the deal. Don't think only in terms of meat here. Are y'all with me? This is where you have to see the connection of what Paul is saying. Think in terms of what happens to his soul. Not in terms of the meat. The reason he may not eat meat sacrificed to idols is because the times he went there before to partake of that meat sacrificed to an idol, he also participated in temple prostitution. Hmm, more serious, huh? He would go and sleep with temple prostitutes. He would then go over uh, to sacrifice something to a God on a list that was not our God. He just picked a God and made a sacrifice because he thought that's what brought him close to God. So what you are doing is the very thing that will trigger that onslaught of temptations in his former life before he met Jesus. Are y'all listening? That's exactly what you're doing when you, cause you, when you say, this is the kingdom of me, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and you have no regard to your brother. That's exactly what you're doing. You're opening up that window of onslaught of temptation. And he's not overtaken because he eats a piece of meat. He's overtaken because he's violated his conscience. And he's overcome by the very sins that Christ set him free from. That's what it means to cause your brother to stumble. He's overcome by those sins. Same ones that enslaved him before. And folks, that's contrary to love. That's Paul's point. Notice how he expands this in Romans chapter 14. That's the last time I'm going to have you turn, I promise. Even if I find another verse, I'm not going there, right? Romans chapter 14. Listen to what it says. Verses 13 through 17. We stopped a little early of this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Again, the onslaught of temptation, bound by what he was before he met Christ. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. Man, did we not get people to think about this? It's not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit of God. I'm telling you, the joy of the Spirit of the living God in you is a whole lot better than the booze. Right? Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
And so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual uplifting. So the good thing you enjoy is spoken of as evil. It's kind of bad, isn't it? That liberty that can be spoken of as a good thing ends up being spoken of as evil because of what you did in regard to causing a brother to stumble. And the kingdom of God is so much bigger than what we eat and drink. Is it not? And the text reminds us of that. Uh, I am no longer walking in love, but I'm stating by my actions that the most important thing to me is the kingdom of me. And we never want that to happen. Folks, do you see how important it is to love your brother and sister in the Lord? Do you see how important it is to think about the decisions you make? Not just to use a blanket statement, oh, I'm free in Christ, here's one of my Christian liberties. Have you stopped long enough to think about these five things? Have you stopped long enough to think about how it affects your brother? I'm telling you, folks, there's a day coming when we're going to stand before the judge. We're going to stand before the king and give an account of every deed done in the flesh, good or bad. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Man, to look the Lord of glory in the face and to know that you intentionally used your liberty because it was all about me and yet you were causing your brother to stumble and you didn't stop long enough to love your neighbor or serve your neighbor. That's a serious situation. And again, verse 17 reminds us that you pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building. Building up of the body of Christ. You say, well, this is kind of inconvenient to me because I want to do my own thing. How convenient you think it was for the Son of God to leave the confines of heaven and die on a cross for you to set you free. That wasn't convenient either. But he did it. Why? Because he loved us. And he served us. So I don't really care about your convenience. What's most important is what honors Jesus. And how it affects your brother and sister in the Lord. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about a convinced stronger brother. A convinced weaker brother. We're going to talk about a straight up legalist. Who says you can't do anything. Right? And then we're going to talk about possibly the confused brother. Who doesn't exactly know exactly where he is. And how do we deal with all that. And folks, remember this. Did you notice Paul making this statement? If they're a brother or sister in Christ and they're strong or weak and they're abstaining or not abstaining, don't you know that we are to all marvel at the deep love of God, that God would love any of us? I mean, that person around you that's giving you the most difficulty, if they trust Christ, even if they're abstaining or not abstaining in a certain liberty, don't you know that Jesus died for that person? And they, they trust the same Christ that you trust. So therefore, we ought to make sure we all marvel at the deep love of God. There are people who have put their faith in Jesus just like you have. So we'll serve. The question is, will we serve ourselves or serve others? Y'all are such good listeners. All right. There's a ringtone. It's over, right? All right. Uh, The invitation is easy. Listen this morning. Don't stand up. Perhaps, you can, Caleb. Perhaps... There's an area in your life that is enslaving you. And you know it as a believer. Put your face on the altar. If you walk down here, we're not going to automatically say, whoop, they're enslaved by something. No, that's not the case. Maybe, maybe you have caused a weaker brother to stumble. And you know that. Maybe there needs to be an apology to that person. Everything you do affects somebody. Don't ever let, don't ever go off thinking, oh, what I do is my own. No, it affects this body in some kind of way. Maybe you don't know the Lord, and what ultimately you need is to be set free from the curse of the law and and the bondage of sin. 
Whatever that may be, would you respond to the Lord as Caleb leads? Uh, just stay in your seat. Don't stand. Just listen. Come Let this be between you and the Lord. By sin There's mercy with the Amen. Lord. There is mercy with the Lord. Listen, on the second verse, no one sings. Let's listen to the words, and let's think about you before the Lord. Listen to Caleb as he sings. For Jesus shed his precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as What a truth. Snow. It does wash. Only trust him, only trust him, only trust him now. He will save you, he will save you, he will save you now. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you. Amen. I hope uh, you'll come back next week, and I hope I didn't meddle too much. All right? Amen? All right. Okay. VBS canvassing is this afternoon. What that means is we're going to canvass the community, and everybody will have a map, and you'll be able to go out, and we'll help you do that. Me here in the fellowship hall at 6 o'clock. Okay? All right. I want to introduce you to uh, the FBCO safety team, and I know we're taking a little bit of time on Sunday morning, but you absolutely need to hear what we have to say, okay? All right. The following, uh, they're uh, a group that is the safety team for First Baptist Church Ozark. Uh, Near past attacks and fatal shootings at houses of worship uh, requires safety. It requires vigilance. Uh, to protect our church members. And so our church leadership has taken your safety seriously, and we've approved this particular safety team. All members of the safety team are volunteers and have been trained by a church safety security consulting company and a law enforcement and military members of the safety team we have here. Now I'd like to introduce you to this safety team. You can see them, all right? The safety team is led by Dr. Stephen Benton, all right, that's him right there. He has uh, safety security experience, both in military and in law enforcement. The members of the team are the individuals standing up here today. Seven of those members have had military and or law enforcement experience and are armed. 
would these members step forward so you may recognize these individuals? And I have to say right quick, it sure is sad that we have to come to church and be armed. But folks, as a pastor and protecting our church family, we have no other recourse. Um, the Ozark police officer, our dear brother, in the, in the churches on Sundays is the command and control authority for all emergency action. Uh, certain members of the safety team have been appointed as backup, successive command and control officers in the event that Ozark police officer is incapacitated. Here are a couple things to remember. First, if the church is in session and you hear the command, take, over, take cover, please lower yourself as best possible below the seat level in your pews. Remain in that position until you are given the command all clear. The safety team members and the ushers will direct by individual pews your exit from the church to the closest exit when the all clear command is announced. Uh, if any questions you may have, Dr. Benton will answer those. Plus, when we have our conference coming up soon, Brother Chris, we talked about that we would address any questions you may have about this so our church understands clearly. Number two, if you have a concealed weapon and you think you want to be a good Samaritan, please refrain from using your weapon and leave it concealed. We do not want to confuse an active shooter situation by not knowing if you are a shooter by showing your firearm. If during your presence at church you have a safety concern, please contact a member of the safety team. They're identified by name badges and security badges shown on their clothing. All members are equipped with walkie-talkies and can instantly communicate situational concerns to each other as well as the church medical team. Safety and security policies for FBCO are being developed to guide the safety team in regard to action to be taken for acts of aggression, severe weather conditions, medical emergencies, and fire. Again, if you have any questions or concerns, please contact Dr. Benton, who will be happy to assist you. And, of course, you can contact any of our staff, and we'll forward those questions to Steve. Again, I hate this, uh, but also I, I, it's my responsibility as a shepherd of this church to make absolutely sure that we are protected. And all of this has been by insurance as well. Uh, we fall in suit with our own insurance company in these regards. And uh, again, uh, we, we know that these guys that are carrying a gun uh, and they're armed, that they have been either militarily trained or officer trained. Okay? All right. Thank you all so much. Okay, well, again, don't forget about VBS canvassing tonight. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord. We'll have one more sermon on Christian liberty, and then you can thump your Bible, and we'll be back in Acts. All right? All right, Caleb's going to lead us, and as we dismiss. Prince of Peace, hear your bride.